Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Across Time Zones. On this episode we sit down with Rob, aka Spanish Rob, who's one of the OGs in the watch game. We talk about the industry, beating up a Tiffany dial Nautilus, the watch community, and some other more serious topics. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Across Time Zones. Uh, this is kind of a special one because, uh, as you noticed, OT couldn't make it uh, because his wife and his son uh, have a bit of a cold. So you'll have to make do with my weird self. But luckily for you, I have a very, very special guest. Uh, we have Mr. Spanish Rob in the house. Oh, hey, Rob. Hi. How's it going? Good. I'm good. How are you? Not bad, not bad. Good to talk to you uh, all the way in Germany. I'm, I'm here in New York. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Yeah, so um, the way we do it is we typically start with a wrist in time check. And since you're the guest, uh, why don't you get us started? Well, I am wearing my... Uh, I'm, wearing, <laughs> I'm wearing... I wear several watches. Um, and I'm wearing two, but I've been revolving four this weekend. And uh, one of my favorites that I've recently acquired is a Dietrich TC1. Oh, uh, cool. Manuel Dietrich was, was nice enough to make me a custom dial, one of two, with like a greenish, blue-green, like turquoise, seafoam green kind of color, which I kind of love. Oh, uh, nice. It's very unique and rare. And it's, it's a great, solid uh, – the, the, the bracelet itself is just so solid, and it's just, uh, it works really well for you if you know what it looks like. That, and then I'm wearing a Christopher Ward – uh, a bronze C60 trident. Uh, it's getting a nice patina on it. Wow. That, really that cool. and uh, honorable mention to my titanium Seamaster Omega chronograph uh, and, and Oris Aquas. Uh, I've been wearing the four of them, like just rotating between the four of them, wearing two at a time. Wow. Uh, I have a source of life Aquas, which I just, I, I saw at last year's balls and I fell in love with. And, uh, and it was my first Oris. Yeah, th- those are really cool. So, so you're double wristing? Every day for the last 14 years. Yeah. Wow. Uh, how come? Unless I'm going to like a gym or something, I'm not going to wear two. <laughs> but <laughs> usually every day I wear two, I feel naked if I don't wear two. Um, I, when I started in the industry, uh, like 14 years back, I was working at retail at a Tourneau. And uh, I was wearing uh, just a Movado and I'd wear it on the wrong wrist in theory because uh, I was a righty and I would wear it on my right wrist. And when I got my first watch working there, I got a, a Breitling um, as a spiff and I try to condition myself to wear it on the other wrist. And it's, it was very difficult to do that. As, as most people know, like if you're trying to wear a watch on the opposite wrist, it's actually very uncomfortable. So I conditioned myself to do that just so I can learn how to wear that watch on the right wrist in theory. And essentially I got used to wearing both of them and, uh, people knew me in the store as the guy with the two watches. And I just felt naked whenever I wouldn't wear both. So it's kind of, <laughs> It's kind of been it's kind of been since then, so it's been a good fourteen something years. Wow. Uh, and 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 when people would ask, it was just great for sales and marketing and just branding. Like the whole Spanish Rob thing was just really branding that happened a long time ago. The two watch thing was kind of my branding uh, in in my work life and retail life before Spanish Rob and the the watch thing uh, intersected. It was just me being this watch guy with two watches, and um, essentially people would come in and and they would ask me. I get asked all day every day till today like why i wear two watches and the quick answer for uh 
my clientele that would come in, I would say, you know, there's only so many days to live. Why choose only one watch? Because obviously I was trying to tell them <laughs> as many watches as possible. I'm like, why would you only pick one? And they'd be like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to wear all my watches all the time. I'm just going to wear Why wear one? Why choose one? Right. I mean, th that's a great strategy and also a great branding strategy. Like I'm the guy with two watches. <laughs> it's it, it's caught on. I can't bring myself to do it. Like I tried. I tried with my Apple watch and uh, a normal watch, but I don't. I can't do it. It's, I'm not sure why. <laughs> it's, it's a constricting thing. And, and a lot of people, uh, either you wear a watch or you don't. And there's so many who don't wear watches. And when, when I meet somebody who wears a watch, I'm like, so much kudos. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a Daniel Wellington. It could be anything. If you're wearing a watch, I give you kudos because it's it's really it's, it's a state of mind for us to put and strap things onto our wrist because it is a bit constricting. So I get it. I get it. Wearing more than one sometimes is difficult for people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have to wear a watch basically after I take a shower. That's pretty much the first thing I'll do because I have to walk the dog typically. And um, I, I risk my G-Shock. That's my walk the dog watch always. <laughs> uh, unless it's i don't know afternoon or evening if i i don't change watches that often during the day but it's that's the g-shock um cool so uh you're in new york that's eastern time that's gmt minus five i think something like that yeah it's it's uh 317 cool and uh, i am yeah. just wearing one watch my uh discontinued blnr um which i said i will sell but i to don't bring myself to sell that watch for some reason. I, I don't know why. It's probably because I never sold a watch in my life. So I have all my watches ever since I started collecting. Like even I even have my first watch. Even have a Swatch which I bought like twenty years ago, which is uh, which has a cracked uh, crystal. It still works. Uh, I keep it in the drawer just just because because it's uh, <laughs> it, it's a memory. So. Max, you and I have so much more in common than I thought. I'm uh, I'm very much a sentimental person and uh, have a hard time getting rid of watches and have sold almost no none of my watches since since the beginning. Uh, I have a lot of really old watches that don't work; they're just sitting around. I I I, I definitely feel you on that. And I have a BLNR that I haven't worn in like at least a month and a half or something. Um, I just stopped wearing it because uh, the prices are going through through the roof, and it's my first and only Rolex, and I I don't want to sell like i love it like there's something about the blnr that's just so iconic and so amazing and so well-rounded just the fact that it's not just it's not simple it's not just black but the fact that it has that pop of color with like the most royal blue yeah. i just i love it so much and i to be honest i got it as kind of like a as a default because it was more of like i'm more of a situational buyer a collector like if the opportunity arises and something comes up then i'll, I'll get it like there's watches that i've wanted for many years and sometimes I won't buy it until the, the right situation happens. Like my, uh, I bought an IWC Aquatimer Galapagos uh, for my birthday that I wanted for like six or seven years, and it just kind of wow. just kind of happened. And then I was like, "This is perfect, the perfect scenario." Well, with the BLNR, the same thing happened. And now I'm like, maybe I shouldn't wear it because maybe I have to sell it because <laughs> the, the prices are ridiculous right now. Um, what do you think about? Is yeah. it, is it gonna, are they going to cap or is it going to keep going? The price is going to keep going on on the value. Of that watch um yeah i don't i don't think so like i think it will it will keep going for for some time now i think until the new one the uh, 12 uh, 61 uh, 67 10 yeah that's the reference. the bad girl uh the bad girl yeah and until that one really hits the market and then i think uh, the price i mean i'm checking chrono 24 and websites regularly just to 
and just to enjoy myself like oh i have a watch which goes up but um i think once the bad girl is out um, the prices will cap at some point and i'm pretty sure they will fall um i think they're pricing the bad girl similarly to the pepsi last year oh yeah um, even more so uh, not not that much uh i mean last year we've seen pepsi at i don't know 20 22,000 i think the bad girl is around 18 19 probably 20 oh wow like very, very low 20s but i think that will go down as well oh totally the, the sec- yeah the more supply the everything will go down and i don't know i think it will cap and then uh maybe take a dip and then just go organically probably in 10 years it might be a very good uh i don't want to call it investment because i hate that term when it comes to watch when it comes to watches (laughs) like watches are not an investment they're they shouldn't they're an opportunity if need be but uh they're not an investment but yeah i think they, they will dip and then maybe they'll just organically um, uh, go up. Uh, if you think about the regular GMT, the the DLN, that watch like yeah. artificially rose from what was it like eight thousand to twelve fourteen like overnight, which is ridiculous. Demand. It's it's what I yeah. call the aquanaut. It's the aquanaut effect. Basically, when the uh, the the more coveted favorite child just gets too, too, too hard to get. And then it's siblings and the, the people, the watches around them kind of rise just from that effect. And it's, it's very similar with the Aquanaut where like the Nautilus became a thing. And then the, the Aquanaut was attainable at one point. And then when the Nautilus became too out of the reach for even the wealthiest of people, the Aquanaut got all this fame. And the Aquanaut wasn't really that hot of a watch ever. It wasn't that really the great watch. I'm sorry. Right. Um, castor, I mean, but like it's it's the it's like eh, the Aquanaut's okay. It was just always kind of like the second fiddle. Um, same thing with that with the LN for going so high. And to go back about the Batgirl prices, like the first month or two, I had a friend who who got one and and sold it for twenty four thousand. And then I, I I I know people who are selling them right now for twenty thousand. And I'm just wow. like Jesus, this is insane. Um, and that's kind of why I'm on the fence about selling a watch because i don't ever sell watches but i'm like if i would i i mean i don't even know what our batman would command you know as time goes on they become more scarce in theory yeah i don't know i mean the reason why i am what i'm why i'm wearing the blnr right now is because i wanted to twin with ot because he just got his batgirl it was a gift oh really it was a gift from his wife i'm not sure if i'm allowed to say it on air but that's it (laughs) sorry caitlin um, but yeah, it, um, so I wanted to twin with him, like Beal and our brothers. But yeah, I feel like it's it's getting increasingly harder to wear pieces which are skyrocketing in price. I'm reaching over to get my Beal and R now. I have to hold it in my hands for this <laughs> for this, uh, for this conversation. Yeah. Oh my god. It's so funny because the other day I posted a shot of uh, of my Daytona. I have a white dial uh, Panda, and. Um, the Daytona was on my headphones and then people started like almost cursing. Like I got DMs like, why are you destroying the watch? It's going to be magnetized. It's going to be, you're fucking up the watch. I'm like, dude, chill. It's, it's a watch. Plus it's a, I don't know. It's a testament to how good the parachrome, uh, parachrome spring is or whatever they call it. Yeah. It's yeah. We won't have to worry about magnetization. Yeah. If it gets magnetized, I'll just get a $20, whatever it is, demagnetizing thingy of eBay, and bloop, that's it. Done. I fixed it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, cool. Um, yeah. So uh, wrist and time check done. Actually, I'm in uh, European Central Time, so I don't forget. It's uh, 9.23 p.m. I'm in Munich, Germany right now. Nice. Cool. So that's out of the way. Um, so I'm pretty sure most of our listeners already know you, but for the very few who don't, uh, just tell us a bit about yourself. I'm very flattered. Um, I've, I'm just a, a watch enthusiast uh, that's lucky enough to be in the industry for uh, so many years. Um, I went to school for psychology and was always into sales and was really good at it because of the background psychology. Uh, I'm like a behaviorist more than anything else but i worked retail at a at a watch uh retailer torno and kind of worked my way up the ladder i just uh went from knowing everything about watches or just learning as much as i could in the retail setting with torno at the time in its heyday it was at its prime in the world's largest retailer we had access to everything on the brands and pre-owned stuff and that helped me understand pre-owned market uh vintage stuff and just all all everything about watches um, and it was it was an invaluable resource at the time, and uh, I kind of worked my way up the ladder. I went corporate. I was a national trainer for Torno. I was the top salesperson for them for uh, selling the Torno brand and like warranties and help expand their warranty department. Uh, and over the years, I just I've done so many different things in the industry. So I have like a, a gamut of different uh, kind of a. I, I can't think. I'm, I'm blanking. <laughs> I'm nervous because I'm being recorded. Um, because oh, you're not. No. <laughs> Just pretend you're not. I, Plus, it's not on video except for that hidden camera uh, next to your uh, <laughs> next to your clock. You're not being recorded. It's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm just being in my own head. Basically, um, I work. I manage a few boutiques. I work for Protect Philippe for a little bit. That's how I ended up getting my Nautilus. Um, the Tiffany stamp, I was one of the four people to represent Paddock for North America, uh, at the Tiffany salon. And that's kind of where I felt like I'd be- become a, a real horologist because it become so much more than just like buying, selling, collecting, or, you know, watches. It was more, um, learning, understanding horology. And it was the equivalent of like a, of a graduate course. Like, uh, when I got that job and had to learn, like go to schooling for like two and a half months of uh, courses and everything, uh, to get to, to, to be prepared to work for Paddock. Uh, it was intense. It was great. Uh, understanding equation of time, side of time, and just everything. It was, it was great. And from there, I went on to help um, and consult with many different brands, uh, anything watch-related, micro-brands, indie brands, uh, anything that's related to watches in the sense of like everything from Eleven James to uh, a bunch of micro-brands that you guys know of, uh, different blogs, uh, blog to watch, watch time. I mean, anyone and everyone who would use my help or wanted my help or would pay. Um, cool. And uh, I worked for watch time for a while. I, that was actually after I ran, uh, I developed, I was, I was, I, there was a, a German auction house, online auction house, and they started building the American market. And that was a learning experience for me because I got the chance to be the head of a, of a watch department for an auction house and develop it from scratch. And it was not easy. I can tell you that, but <laughs> understanding the auction market in that world and the underbelly of the watch industry with the gray market dealers and all the people who trade and all the people who are there all the time, uh, the regular cast of characters and getting to meet all those people was very, very interesting and understanding a different side of the industry. So for me, it's this, this journey has been amazing because I've been able to see so many different facets, so many different sides of this industry from 
the retail, the wholesale, the auction, the journalistic side, the photography side, the uh, dealing with clients, dealing with watch adjacent companies. The micro brands are amazing and helping them understand how they can market. And all of this kind of happened at the same time with Instagram, like in the when Instagram started to happen and things started to take off and that kind of helped with me understanding digital marketing and digital strategy and then helping companies, whether it was retailers or, or uh, actual brands, uh, helping some brands, independent brands in Switzerland I work with that are clients, smaller ones, bigger ones. And uh, eventually I, I got the opportunity to work with Watch Time and help them redo all their digital uh, help with events, help with their website, help with photography. And that was a big deal for me because I got to work with one of my heroes, Joe Thompson, who I looked up cool. to. And he's like one of the most down-to-earth, genuine guys. And at the time where technology had just started to take off, no one knew who Joe Thompson was. He doesn't have an Instagram. He's not on Facebook. He's not, he's not that guy. He was the gumshoe reporter that was unbiased completely. Like He was the Mueller, the Robert Mueller of... Uh, of the watch industry, really. He was, that, <laughs> he was that guy where he just had the facts, told you straight, had no opinion or basis of anything. He was just the guy. And he was a, a legend. If you were, if you remember pre-Hadinki, pre-any technology where you just had forums and you had just your print magazines, you just had watch time. And uh, right. over the years, I've been able to develop a really good relationship and, and I can call him a friend and we can have like long conversations. And, and the stories he would tell me blew me away so when he got to join Hadinki, I was ecstatic because I knew that these stories you could finally share with the world. And I'm like, Joe, you need to tell people the story about Swatch thing, about how you got in this like fight, kind of like argument, um, this kind of battle with uh, Hayek Senior. I was like, you kind of need to tell that story to the world. And I'm so glad that he did. Uh, and that's kind of things like that. Were, I, was, I feel very fortunate. That, those are one of the highlights of like, I guess, my career in the last in the industry, like that, things like that, like getting to know Joe and. Uh, being able to lucky enough to like help with like Watch Time New York and and different events and then the the growth and development of Red Bar because um, back then there was barely you know no one was on Instagram we started this thing by accident um, Adam started it with a with Dr Jeff and then I just kind of was there in the beginning because I had like a bigger following so people always assumed that Adam and I started it and I would tell no it's not my thing I just I just came I just came recently but I didn't really have a name so we kind of like created a hashtag and someone created the hashtag and uh, that kind of spun and that's that's a combination of like I guess my experience in the watch industry plus red bar and then helping develop the chapters and uh, you know starting Chicago and helping Toronto helping Melbourne helping uh, start like the one in London Miami and then the other ones just took flight and then grew and became bigger than us and it's uh, it was something always I've been very proud of that that this community exists yeah. and that that was able to happen. But now I think I'm just so <laughs> no, that's really really cool. Time. I mean, you're one of the OGs in the in the industry. Uh, so I think it was uh, November 2005, if I remember correctly. I'd have yeah. to look at my notes because I stalked you a little bit. That's good. OT calls that research. Um, <laughs> So you just started out as a uh, sales associate at uh, at Tourneau. Yeah. Uh, was it like a uh, choice? Like, do you want it to sell watches or did it just happen? You needed a job or it so, just came out by chance? So it was very much a choice and I didn't know anything about watches. I was working at a Zales in my mall for like three, three and a half years, working my way through college. And my last year of college, a Torno just opens up. Because at the time, Torno was blowing up and they're opening up like five stores a year, every year in the, in the United States, at the time pre-recession. And when they're in their heyday, they open up a store in my mall in, in Paramus, New Jersey. Uh, 
And I made the decision to leave tor- uh, the, the jewelry store I was working at and go to this Tourneau when they opened up. And I remember they opened up with 17 employees. Um, and I came the week after, like that first week. So like a lot of people left or just couldn't cut it or just <laughs> were like, we can't do this. We don't want to do this. And I was lucky enough to like join and be like one of the 12 people remaining. Um, uh, and I just made the conscious ever. I, the only thing I had at Zales or when I was working at that jewelry store for a few years was basically just uh, Seiko, Citizen, uh, Esquire, Movado kind of stuff. And Movado was literally the top brand that we had. So I knew everything there was to, about Movado, more than the brand reps, because there's so many variations. There were, none of them were, not all of them were in the magazine. You would only know if you just saw them physically in your hand constantly. And there was like a million variations of, of Movado. Um, they all had funny names. Uh, so I came to Torno. I was the Movado guy uh, because that was the only one who knew anything about it. Uh, and then I worked my way up and just kind of learned everything. I was at the very wow. bottom. That, that's so um, cool. And yeah. how do you think the industry or, I mean, you, you know how the industry was in the mid 2000s. Uh, how is it compared to now? Like in terms of retail, in terms of branding, like all these aspects, how much did it change? Because I think it changed. Like even talking about the BLNR and uh, the prices of Nautilus is uh, now versus nobody would give a shit about a Nautilus 20 years ago. Like, I mean, they were cool, but uh, yeah. how do you feel about that? It's such a complex question that would probably take a few hours to talk about. But um, if I, I'm going to try to abridge this in as much nutshell. as possible, so I think in a nutshell, in a nutshell, it's uh, so many things happened uh, over the, the, the course of years, and, and, and it was a combination of all these things that happened that led us to where we are right now. I mean, the combination of Hayek Senior deciding to pull out and say we want more creativity. We want other brands to not fend, you know, they need to fend for themselves. They can't just rely on us because at the time it was a simpler time, uh, in the mid two thousands, the nineties, like whatever, it was a simpler time. You had hot horology, you had independent guys that no one knew. You had like only your watch expert with guys were on forums and they're usually older, uh, and, and wealthier and you didn't have as enough variety. So in certain regards, we have a much broader, group of people collecting nowadays we have a much broader group of 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 price points we have people buying indies that's a whole subculture there's websites and everything dedicated you have worn and wound that deals with everything up to like five thousand or more more or less and they have a, a giant community of people and that, that ranges everything from people who are passionate about you know normal seiko all the variations all the micro brands and all that other stuff but you didn't have that much and there was no there was a lack of communication. The, the, the community was fragmented back then because of technology. We just didn't right. have that communication. So when you, com- when you combine the, the communication that eventually unifies a lot of people and, and gives the substance to what it is, and it, obviously Switzerland, is they, they're known for being like so behind in the times. It took them years to catch up with social media because I remember the first couple of years, they're like, ha, yeah, right, we'll never sell anything online. And now so many brands are literally – direct to consumer uh, online and so the, the the face of the way the industry works the sales the way they communicate has has changed so much because of technology but a big part for me um which i remember reading the article in like 2005 or six or seven or whatever when when joe thompson wrote this article about how hayek was gonna start this revolution where he was gonna cut everybody off and that scared me and i was surprised that no one thought to think, okay, this is, this is a bad thing. This is a bad thing that they're going to cut everyone off. It's good and bad. 
it's good that there's now a lot more brands that are making in-house movements and there's much originality and blah, blah, blah. But what they're doing is they're segregating and they're pushing away so many clients and people who used to be able to buy watches at a lower price point. Like we're talking about 10, 15 years like ago when you could have bought a watch for $2,000. Right. There was not that many people who knew about watches, but there was so much more access and, and you had a, like a, a broader pool of people who could afford to buy watches. Your Omegas were $2,000. Your Breitlings were two to 5000 Your Tag Heuers were one to $3,000. Like your Jaegers were expensive and IWC was expensive because they started between four and seven. Jaegers were like four five to like $7,000, $8,000. Cardet was like $3,000. And your Rolex Samariner was forty was four thousand dollars, and then it was forty four hundred dollars. And I remember we used to sell them used for four thousand, and a brand new one for forty four. Wow. But we didn't carry brand new Rolex in my store, but they had like Rolex across the street, so I knew. Um, and uh, it was just funny because we it, it, it was it, it was obtainable. So now, if you think of how did the Rolex Samariner go from a four thousand dollar watch to a ten thousand dollar watch in the span of a decade, maybe a little more, more or less, it's a, a way too rapid of an inflation. Um, and I, I combine that with it's it's there's technological advances, there's reasons to justify it. And the watches are way more solid. Don't get me wrong; like I I, I love my Beyond Hard. It's a solid tool watch compared to you know back then. I wasn't a fan of the Rolex. They were very um, like tin like. They were hollow, and they were kind of. I wasn't a fan of the older ones, um, so I didn't really think much of it. But they they were priced at what they were priced at at like the four thousand dollar price point. But to think that you could have had a, a four thousand dollar, you know, you could have had a Rolex for four thousand dollars back in like within our life, like within a, a span of 10, 15 years ago, it's insane to think yeah. about. And how much the inflation has gone up and how much everything has changed. And a lot of that, okay, is that greed? Is that it's partially the Swiss watch industry eventually kept growing and maybe they got a little greedier. Maybe they thought they could pump out more movements, maybe they could pump they could charge more. And every brand from Omega to I mean all of them have just said, we can just keep upping the prices. And I, and I think 2000, between 2008 and 2011 was like where we saw that, okay, you can't do that anymore. Like there's a, that's, that's why there was such a drop in the recession. When the economy was bad, the, the community responded by stop. Everyone just stopped buying watches. And it hit them really hard. And uh, in theory, they should have learned and understood. And some brands do. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of brands that are still reasonably priced and haven't moved. Look at IWC. Look at Jaeger. Their price points have been the same for like, like yeah. over a decade, like well over a decade. I, the fact that you can buy certain watches for the exact same price you got to bought them 15 years ago is is a testament to the brand and how much they care and not over overshooting what the price point was. Zenith was a great example of somebody who shot the horse. They are not that's not the that's not the term. I don't know what the term is. They over they shot they overshot, and um, they uh, had their watches for seven thousand, eight thousand dollars, right? The El Primero, yeah. your, your your classic watches. They said we want to be a sports brand. We want to make sports watches, and they want to make. Um, they created the Defy in like the mid two thousands, and these Defies were like these big rock hard, like square, sharp edges, like these big funky things that Terry Natoff, the CEO at the time, had. He was his idea. Uh, oh, side note. The two watch thing I got from Terry Natoff also. <laughs> Terry Natoff was the CEO for Zenith, where all the catalogs. If, if anyone remembers this. Everyone would wear two watches and all the catalogs, but but it was the same watch and it was like a yin and yang because he's like obsessed with yin and yang. That's so <laughs> Everyone cool. would wear a black and white watch uh, for every model. They had the port and the El Com the Grand Chrome Master, all that other stuff. I digress. Anyway, so Terry Natoff, crazy dude, great man. I loved what he did, uh, but he was very much of like, all right, let's show it off. All the catalogs were just 
basically fashion magazines with no information, just photos of models um, wearing two watches. And uh, he has this idea to create this bigger, more expensive watch because the, 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 at the heyday, the, the industry was doing well and we thought the projection, we could go that route. The way Hayek thought the same thing. Hayek thought, we can do this. We can, we can make, um, have everyone make their own watches. And then it's going to, and the problem that I had with that is that that cost was going to be on the consumer. And that's what upset me. We're like, you could have had an Etta and almost everything for $2,000. Your same Etta and Valjoux and your Breitling, your Omega, your Tag Heuer, all in the two dollars to $3,000 range. Uh, and, and your IWCs too, which also use Valjoux and, and, and right. Etta at the time. Um, and, and then they, they, they were going to put the cost in the consumer, which I was not a fan of. Uh, and essentially, that's kind of what happened where everyone just thought they can just raise the prices. And, and Zenith was a great example of someone who did that. Their same movement in a big, crazy, funky, square-ish, rock-hard, like sharp edge Defy was $16,000. And that completely tanked so hard um, that, that, you know, that brand almost went under. Like it, or not, it didn't almost go under, but like that was such a huge flop and such a huge failure for them that they were flailing. And they were just lucky that they were right, had to be just been a... Acquired not too long prior to that by LVMH, and like they were held by LVMH. If they didn't have LVMH over them, they wouldn't be around today because that was kind of like a really big deal. That was a huge flop. I mean, Hublot managed to to do the same, like cheap movement in an expensive watch. I mean, not all of them, of course, but I think they were selling Etta movements for ten grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had that Valjoux and Etta, and they had these really large watches, but the, they could justify it by the materials. And then Bivari was a, a marketing genius and just marketed really well because he marketed to non-watch people. He marketed globally around the world. You go anywhere, you go to Africa, you go all over the world. People know Hublot because he was a marketing genius and he understood limited editions. He understood how valuable it was. He gave people what people wanted and he, he focused on the people who might not know you know, so much. I, I think it's, it's, it's silly that there's so much hatred towards a brand like Hublot. There's a few watches that I do like and there's a few watches that they make are horologically impressive and the amount of quality that goes into it is just that it's it's so much easier for people just to hate the brand than not understand how much work goes into it and how quality and how amazing it is like if you were to go to the manufacturer and you see how they made these things you'd be like oh wow okay i get it like that's actually really cool i might actually buy one one day uh and they 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 don't care what you know the 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 the, the small group of us in the community that might not like it they have hundreds of millions of dollars of sales globally of other people who could care less and are still buying their brand. But I digress. It's interesting that the watch industry itself decided, like, let's up the game. And then consumers followed. So basically, they were generating demand out of almost thin air, if you think about it. Well, they, it was, it was, they got, I'm not going to say, I guess it, I, I want to say that the, the industry got lucky that the, the broader scope of people to buy watches had grown because of technology. So they thought and they think they can get away with upping the price of watches and, and, and people are still going to buy them and the rich are still going to be rich and still buy things and that was the case for a long time until the recession happened but it was really they got lucky that the pool of buyers has grown so much because of technology because of social media because of digital the reach for people to buy watches is so much greater than it was 10 15 years ago 10 15 years ago it was like you bought a magazine and it was a handful of guys over 40 you know, now it's like you have people as young as 15 who are obsessed with watches. You have kids and young, you know, people in their 20s, people in 30s that are now watching through using collectors. And you didn't really have that much 10, 15 years ago. So they got lucky. 
that there's a bigger br- pool of people who want watches now. Does that mean they can constantly, you know, raise the prices of watches? No, it's there was a there's a there's a ceiling, and that was obviously evident with like Zenith's flop when they tried to do that and they doubled the prices on a watch on their on the collection, and then that just completely failed, and they just acted like it never happened. They just kind of like dissolved it. And they're like, all right, never mind. And I'm glad that they found their footing. Uh, and now they're they're amazing. They, they've always been an amazing brand, and uh, they don't get enough credit as these are. Zenith and, and Grand Seiko are probably like two of my favorites that are just amazing and undervalued. Um, but that was like a lesson in, in time that you, if you were there in real life and you saw it, you'd see, okay, Zenith tried, they failed. Some brands try and fail. Some brands know better. I, I remember when IWC and Jaeger uh, lowered <laughs> the prices. They brought their prices back down after the recession, after raising it. In 2011, when everyone raised their price three times. Cartier, Paddock, really, everyone raised their prices three times in 2011 to catch up from the recession. Uh, some brands have to bring their price back down. Yang and IMC is a good example of that. To, to, they knew that they, did, they couldn't price out their customers because then they would, they would collapse. They would fail as a brand. So do you think if Paddock would, uh, I don't know, just raise the prices again? I think they did one last year. But if they would, I don't know, up the prices on the Nautilus line, just, I don't know, like 40% up, they would get, get away with it, I think. It depends on the it depends on the ratio. It depends on the percentage. It depends on how much. I mean, they knew that they could raise it after so many years from like twenty three to twenty five to twenty six back to twenty five, and then bring it up to thirty. And they knew that they could bring it up to thirty, and it would be fine just because of the aftermarket price. They couldn't raise it like to fifty because that would. I think a lot of people would be just really, really. Dis- disenchanted with the brand because it's there's no reason that watch should cost fifty thousand dollars. It should there's no reason it should cost twenty thousand dollars. It should be like the like the Royal Oak was, but it was good branding and good marketing strategy. Good, uh, just good business. It was yeah. good business on their on behalf to have AP back when their steel watches. Both brands had steel watches in the twelve thousand dollar price point, and Paddock decides we're going to make this watch twenty thousand dollars. And it completely blew AP. That for me, that was the threshold of when AP and, and Vacheron and Rolex were all the same. I'm sorry, AP Paddock and, and Vacheron were all on the same platform in like the 90s or 2000s or maybe the 90s. And then like they kind of one broke away and Paddock just surpassed them because it was really for me that threshold was when you could have bought a Royal Oak for 12,000, but your Nautilus cost 20,000. So then at that point, everyone flocked to the Nautilus because of you know the collectors anyway flocked to it and the enthusiasts back then who were you know existed back then you know pre-digital made the nautilus way more important because the brand just upped the price and unfortunately as you know enthusiasts and collectors and because people do look at this as an investment um we flocked to that kind of stuff it's just it was just good business on their part do i agree with it no but they make the watch a twenty thousand, then a twenty three thousand dollar watch. When the Royal Oak was a twelve thousand dollar, thirteen thousand, fourteen thousand dollar watch, and it because of pure just imagery and just the message that that sent, regardless of which watch is better or in quality or or design, it didn't matter. Everyone just flocked to the Nautilus and just made it seem like it was more important because they had artificially created that that demand by making it a higher price point. So to answer your question, like if they made it a fifty thousand dollar watch, I think there's a I think there's a ceiling. I'd like to think that people aren't such lemmings that just because it costs fifty thousand dollars that they need to buy it because it costs fifty thousand dollars. I would like somebody to think. I mean, we hope so, but the reality <laughs> is, I don't know. I mean, I, I want to believe that there's uh, 
good in this world, but at some point, <laughs> like, it, it, uh, think about I, it. If I you have you people mean. like uh, Shark Tank's um, uh, Kevin O'Leary, like he just pulls out like the heavy hitters, like all, all the hyped watches of the moment. Like, oh, these are good investments. Go out and go out and buy those. I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Come on. This is ridiculous. He's just pushing the Hulk. He's pushing the it's Pepsi. Ridiculous. He's pushing the Naughty. I was like, come on, dude. So he he was uh, he's one one of my clients uh, that I worked with. He was our client. He came in and they filmed the MSNBC that thing that one day, and we gave him the fifty seven eleven to buy, and we filmed the segment with uh, the manager of, of the store that I was working with, and uh, it was funny because. Everyone's just like, oh, we just give him a 5711. And it's like, all right, no, he was actually a good client of the retailer for many, many years. And it took him like seven years to finally get it, to get the call, to finally get the watch. But I mean, obviously it was sweetened because he was like, yeah, I'll put you guys on TV. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> film, I'll put you film a segment with MSNBC. Um, and they're like, yeah, okay, well, there you go. Um, but yeah, for him to just, to him to buy this watch, it still took some work and it, you do definitely need to pull some strings and, and, uh, it, is he super passionate about it? Does he care that, you know, why it costs 23 or 26 or whatever it cost him? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Some people might just buy it because they, they buy it because they, they know what it is. Uh, and, and, and at the, at the, at the, at the risk of people hating me, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the best watch. It's a very basic 324 caliber. They put in like all their watches. Paddock uses like three basic movements in like the majority of their watches. Either the 324 full rotor or the micro rotor or a manually wound 215, you know, it, it, it's, and then everything is either stacked onto that and then it's, you know, or, or different modules that, that go onto it, but it's just your basic simple caliber, calendar, uh, caliber rather. I mean, it's okay. It's a, it's a good design. I'm so happy you say that because if I say it, uh, people are like, oh yeah, you don't afford one or you can't get one. Like, oh, who are you to say? But if a owner and not even a normal Nautilus owner, like you had the Tiffany stamp on it. Like if you say that, like people should at some point listen, like it's not the big of a deal. It's just a fucking watch <laughs> that people overhyped. It's that's it. Yeah. I mean, it, I'll, I'll give you a funny story. When I bought it, my coworkers, I remember when I bought it, it was such a big deal for me. And I asked so many people and I talked to everyone and no one cared. No one, no one cared. My coworkers thought I was silly. They're like, you're buying a watch that was designed in the seventies. It looks like it's from the eighties. Uh, and we knew how important it was. You know, it was 2011. It wasn't as important, but we sort of knew how important it was. And people were just like, meh, like, okay, you're buying a watch that's from the, that looks like it's from the eighties. My, my bosses didn't care. They're like, yeah, whatever, just buy it. We had like seven of them in the safe. And, and like, it was, it was just, no one, no one cared. Um, at the time. And it was also because we didn't, we lacked, um, we lacked, you know, the, the technology, the digital, uh, the, 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 the exposure, all the, really. the, the, all the exposure and the communication of people being like, Oh my God, this is how important it is. And before that people were like, man, whatever. So it, it was funny because I bought it and I, I, I bought it because of how important it was for me in the industry, the community, how important I knew the, the watch was an icon in, in, in the world of horology. And I love the design. Um, you know, if I, I like to think that if somebody were offered two generic watches, one looked like a Nautilus and one looked like, I don't know, a Daniel Wellington or something, the majority of people are going to go something that's classic and looks the least, you know, skewed in a weird right. design. <laughs> I think people would go for the regular thing than something that 
is like, okay, what is this weird shaped TV thing with the fins? And like, what is that? Like, what, you know, so it's, it's definitely a taste that I think people have acquired because they were told that they need to like it. And, uh, that was something that, okay, I'm definitely guilty of that. I definitely fell for that too. Like everyone else, I fell for it too. I bought it because I was sort of put in my mind and that I kind of needed to. Uh, and that doesn't take away from the design, the, the Genta design. It's a brilliant watch and the Royal Oak is amazing, amazingly designed and will forever change the, the landscape of, of design horology. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. It doesn't necessarily mean it should cost $50,000. Yeah. The thing is, what, what I like about yours you you've worn it. You beat the shit out of it. Like I've seen a a picture on Instagram from I don't know a few weeks ago or months ago. Like that watch, you could tell that it's been worn like it's supposed to be. Like it's not a safe queen. You didn't buy it like oh this is a proper investment. Blah blah. You actually liked the watch, and you just used it as it's supposed to be. That that's really awesome. Well, there's a story behind that too. Like that, that, the point of that was, uh, when I was at Paddock, I had a, a client, a German client who was very, um, he was just a very straightforward guy. He was just very, um, I can't, I can't put it into words. I'm just, I'm horrible at putting these into words, but essentially my, one of my favorite clients, I sold him a couple of watches. He was so grateful. And he was the kind of guy who was half a year. He was like a VP. He was half the year in, uh, in Munich and the other half he was in, uh, in, New Jersey, New York. And he would tell me that he would wear a fake Rolex in, while he was in New York because he was afraid of getting mugged. And he could afford paddocks. So he, he bought these paddocks and he would keep them double sealed in a safe. And he would tell me, Robert, every morning I wake up, I open my safe, I look at my watches, I enjoy them. And I, I love them so much. And then I put them back in the safe. <laughs> he locks it and he goes out <laughs> and he wears his fake Rolex just in case he gets mugged. And he, I was like, what kind of life is that to live in fear? What is that? When I was like, and I was young, I was young. I was in my, in my 20s, uh, mid, early, late 20s, I don't know, whatever, late 20s. And I was just like, that's, that's crazy. Like you spend all this money, you work hard, you have these expensive watches, you should enjoy them. I didn't say it to him, obviously. I respected him. Like he was, he was great. I mean, we were, we were good friends. And uh, it, for me, it didn't make sense to, to, to spend all this money on these watches because if he, I remember he didn't have any kids. Um, at the time, and he, if he were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, then what was it all for? What was the yeah. point? Because if he got hit by a bus tomorrow, whoever had access to his watches, whether it's a spouse or whoever, they're going to liquidate it, sell it at auction for like half the value, and then that was it. There was not, there was nothing to it. And I, even if he had kids, the kids would be like, okay, well, I don't care about this watch in a box. I'm going to sell it and see as much money I can get out of it, and that's it. But now, if it was something that someone wore and it was like worn. And there's like more provenance to it. There's more of a heritage and a story to it. So for me, it was like, as much as I loved and respected this client, and he was my favorite client, I wanted to kind of do the exact opposite. I figured I'm going to wear, knowing that I was going to be the only middle class, lower middle class, like, you know, son of immigrants, poor, like Hispanic guy wearing the most ridiculous watch and the rarest, one of the rarest watches in the world because it's got the Tiffany stamp. And it's very desirable. And I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to beat the hell out of it. I'm going to do every single thing that I can because I know no one else on the planet is doing that. I know there's no other person my age range, in my situation with a Tiffany Stamp 5711 dial <laughs> who's jumping off of cliffs and going into every body of water and, and like at mosh pits and rock concerts and skydiving and just taking it everywhere and not being afraid. Because to live in fear is, is it really living? Kind of. So that's kind of my, that was my whole thing where it's like, why, why? Live in fear, I get it. I mean, 
as I got, as I got older, I knew that I was going to slow down. And I, I always knew this. Uh, I used to be like a straight racer when I was like 18 to 21. I used to like, I still do drive fast, but I've definitely slowed down and definitely slowed down my life quite a bit as I got older. But at the time it was like, it made sense to kind of just live my life to the fullest and not be, not live life being held down by fears and, you know, what ifs and everything else. And I, I knew that was a risk. I understood that. Um, but I, I've, I have so many great stories and memories and, 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 you know, photos on Instagram to prove of it, of how worn that watch was and, and how, you know, it's, it was it with me through everything. I went, you went through so much stuff and it, it was great. Um, that's awesome. I mean, I think this is one thing people should really understand that, I mean, you only have one life unless you're living the life for yourself. Like who's going to do it for you? Like you get one shot at this. You buy one watch. If you want a nice car, yeah. If you want to get dessert first, get dessert first, whatever. Try everything once. That's, it doesn't matter. Unless you do skydiving, uh, that might not be a good idea to try it <laughs> once. If you're not good at managing things the first the first time. But yeah, I mean, it's um, people are too, I don't know, scared or uh, they worry too much about all the, I don't know, unimportant stuff. I would say instead of just focusing on the good, like uh, you got the opportunity, the chance to, I don't know, get your grail, use it. Very like, don't, don't look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't store it in a safe. Don't baby it to sleep every night. Like, Oh, I love you. You're the perfect watch, but I'll never put you on because whatever it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's sad. I think it's yeah. it, it's sad if people act like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a connected to a price tag. It doesn't have to be connected to a specific value of a thing. I think the value is what you perceive the value to be. If you're willing to spend a million on a watch, that's the value of that watch for you. And you should treat it like it's a normal thing. Agreed. Oh, no, 100%. If that makes sense. No, agreed. I mean... It's, I, I don't think necessarily everyone has to be this way. I, I think it's, there's good balance. And you know what? The auction houses wouldn't really do well. They wouldn't exist if it wasn't for all the people who kept things in safes oh. for all these years and were too afraid to, 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 to have things because then we find these rare treasures in like great condition. And that's kind of like, I, I would love, I would, I also, if I was going to buy like, you know, a, a 2499 or a 1518, you know, I, of course I'd want it to be in as good condition as possible. But, you know, that's me as a, as a buyer, me as a seller, I'd want to wear the hell out of it. I'd want to live fully yeah. with it. And that's the conundrum. So, you know, it just depends on what side yeah, of the coin you're on, right? We as a community are a funny bunch of people. Like we, uh, we want our cars to be super pristine, like everything original, like the nicest leather, if if possible like even if it's a 1960s whatever, if it's it's been reconditioned, it's perfect. But on a watch, we're like, oh, oh, no original hands. No, 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 no. Sorry, I won't. I won't pay the premium on that because, you know, I want it all original. I want the loom to fall off. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh man, vintage Rolex is a, a conversation for another day. But I can oh, yeah. go on and on about. Yeah, it I don't so want long. to even go there. It, it was probably a bad example, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Wild West in the '90s, man, the heyday of like those watches used to just be. It used to be normal for people just to take things apart and make just make watches like oh you want this with this case and this bracelet and just put things together and change stuff and we'll never really know something that's really truly authentic unless it came from like the original owner of the receipt and everything otherwise right. i mean it's up in the air but i digress yep. anyway 
in the past it was everything uh, everything around the brands doing the stuff and nowadays it's all about like people like even myself at some point i consider myself a sheep because i promote a brand like without any benefit to it like if if i post a picture of a rolex i do marketing for free for them oh i mean your stuff is so good though it all looks like magazine qualities it oh, looks like they you. hired you thank everything <laughs> yeah but i don't have any like uh yeah, I, I do it for free. So it's it's free advertising for them. I think uh, the demand in recent years, uh, I think it's all due to social media and like uh, demand being generated organically. Like you see the same watches all over again every day on every possible platform like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, YouTube. You see those everywhere and then you're like, oh, do I really like that watch because it's uh, because I like it genuinely, or do I like it because like um, oh look it has twenty thousand likes oh that's why I like it <laughs> I don't know it's yeah no it's true it's, it's kind of weird like I think social media got to a weird place um, it started out great but I think it's slowly like I don't know just I mean it's still good I mean I love the community. But at some point, I think it influences uh, our lives and our buying habits way more than it should. And also um, it's affecting our lives, to be honest. Like, um, you, you know, that dopamine effect you're getting when you're getting likes, it's similar to drugs. Oh, totally. 100%. So it's, we're addicted. We're addicted to the thrill of social media and putting content out there and then just getting likes or we're looking at people on Instagram like, Oh, I wish I had their life. Yeah. It's, it's kind of insane. And I, and I always try to tell people, I'm like, it's, it's curated. You're not seeing me, you know, go to the bathroom, do my laundry work, do a, you know, do normal people stuff. You just literally only see me when like I'm at a party on a boat <laughs> in the East river. Like that's it. You yeah. only see me when I'm going to rave or something like, you know, <laughs> you don't really see the rest of it. So don't assume that like my life is perfect and that, you know, I'm just constantly partying, yeah. <laughs> constantly drinking a little bit. Yeah, I think people always assume that. Like, everything you see online is basically the good part. You'll never see the bad things. You don't see that it's raining outside and I'm miserable or something like that. It's it's always like, oh, I'm happy. It's raining outside. I have my nice umbrella. I am just got out of a Rolls-Royce Phantom. I'm being chauffeured to work and it's probably a Uber and I things are always way too curated. And what I would like to see more of, of the community and social media and just technology, just, just everything digitally. I want to see more reality. I want to see more truths. I want to see real stuff. I have so much more respect for like amazingly curated shots. Like the things you do. Sometimes people, everyone's up the game so much. Photos used to suck in 2011, 12, 13 compared to now. Now everyone's a professional photographer and everyone's photos are like amazing. And I love that. Um, there's just some things that are just way too curated, you know, it's like, all right, well, here's this, you know, Rolls Royce Royce and, you know, whatever. And it, a lot of it's just, mm, sometimes it's okay. I mean, the way our vertical of watches is just one tiny vertical in the many, many verticals that is Instagram and like digital, like you have the models, you have the fashion people, you have the food, you have this and that, and everyone has their different thing. And I, and I respect that. I respect that girls who have like these huge followings, they might sell, their own bikini brand or sell whatever they have, you know, a certain demographic and they have a certain way that they need to do it. So they might need to take a photo of themselves every single day. When it comes to watches, there's definitely a, 
a science to it. And there's certain watches, there's certain photos that work and some that don't. Um, it's just when things are just a little too curated, I guess. It just doesn't. And I say when it's too curated, I mean um, it just can't be can't be too fake. A great example is like when a watch is on the wrist the wrong way because it needs to look like you want to be able to see it, so it's on upside down. Like oh, that's right. too curated. Yeah. That's like that just looks fake. That's not real. You want, and that's why the wrist shots when they're like in people's pockets and they're the right way. And maybe you're looking at the watch upside down. But no one thinks about that. Everyone's just like, that's the way it should look. That's not curious. That's it is, but it's it's more realistic is my point. I mean, I'm guilty of that. Like uh probably ninety something percent of my shots are at ten ten. And I set my oh, watches to ten ten. That's that's uniform. That's different. That's not that's 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 like being you know, you know, putting gel in your hair when you when you're like, you know, taking a photo and you're in a suit. Like that's just that's that's a uniform kind of thing. That's not a bad thing. That's I I agree with that hundred percent. I wish I could put my watches at ten ten every single time, but usually I just don't because I don't want to change the hands. Unless I'm taking a I'm doing a photo shoot, unless I'm doing a shoot of watches, every like methodically every single watch I'm constantly putting a ten ten because it's a it's a shot to to promote that watch or in in in, in its best light. So that's that, don't even feel guilty about that even the slightest bit. That's that's what you should do really it's it's to you know make it you know clean it wipe it down 10 10 like we have such high standards now of, of watch photography it's insane and oh, when yeah. people don't have that i'll be like oh this watch isn't even it's like a 10 15 noob what is it <laughs> oh you <laughs> have that about, smudge on the bezel like clean you have it. a smudge on the bezel like what's right no but I'm, it, it, to everyone who's listening this is not, has nothing to do with like instagram i'm talking about like professional photography that's like people get paid for and it's like in ads and stuff. So I'm not judging your Instagram photos. Don't, I mean, please, by all means, <laughs> post whatever the hell you want. Ads, catalogs, and probably like press. I think press. Yeah, press. Should be, and I see a press thing and I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, what, what kind of noob shit is this? You know? Yeah. But I Unless it. it's at a show like, uh, say, Basel, where you get like 10 minutes with the watch. Oh, I yeah. That's a kinda, I, I get it that you don't have the time to like clean oh, my God. it and... Just, what a shit show Basel is when you're there, like seeing 40 appointments in like four days, and you're just like, you're just running around with like a chicken without a head, and you you don't even have time to eat, or you barely remember your name. You're just running around. God forbid you don't. I mean, half the watches are 1010, the other half aren't because you forget or you're just rushing. Uh, I'm so lucky because I'm uh, I'm very new to the whole like watch thing. I only knew Basel existed probably three years ago. Yeah, so I'm oh, very, nice. very new to the whole thing. And I've been to Basel this year, the first time. And I, I had four appointments. So my life was mostly about just running around. Okay, like a headless chicken, but without any like appointment, without any end goal. <laughs> like I just, just, just there, like, let's eat a sausage. Let's, that sounded weird. No. <laughs> let's not go the sausage route. I love, yeah. I love, I love, uh, uh, <laughs> Never mind. I'm not gonna say it. Um, I was gonna say I love I love the uh, Basel world sausage, but uh, there yeah, we go. I was mostly there for the drinks. Yeah, I know the com- the camaraderie and the uh, the networking is invaluable. Um, if you can if you can get in there and make your way, and it's the partying and it's it's exhausting because for me it's it's so many things. It would be working for a client and then doing my own appointments, and then I was doing appointments for other magazines and and blogs, and then I was also going to all the events and then going out all night for the socializing and the networking until like God knows what time. 
And then you got to do it all over again the next day and like do it all in like three or four hours sleep. And then you're working like these crazy long days or you're running around. And I would be with a client. I had a, a client that I was photographing and interviewing and doing all this stuff for. So I, I was in their retail appointments. I was in some press appointments. I was, I did an absurd amount. Uh, but every year I go to Basel, I'm like that weird person who's there from the very beginning to the very end. And everyone's like that, you know, fuck that. That's stupid. It's crazy. And I'm like, I love it. I'm trying to get as much out of Basel world as possible. And I am so sad that there's so many brands I don't get to see because there's, I ran out, I run out of time. Like I just, there's literally not enough. Cause I, I, most people cover only you cover maybe under 5,000 or maybe you only cover the high end stuff or maybe you only cover the Indies. And I'm like literally trying to do all of it. I'm giving the respect and the mad love to the indie guys, the guys who are in the, you know, in the bottom level of the Viperian who are just, you know, in a counter trying to, you know, show their watches to the world to the, you know, dealing with the, the high end stuff upstairs or the things that are the big box brands, you know, at the, at the actual show uh, and trying to do all of it. It's just, <laughs> it's a lot. It's exhausting. Oh yeah. I mean, I hope next year will be more exhausting for me. <laughs> it will be the thing is uh, i have no idea why i'm going i'm just going for the love of watches like i don't have any end game with uh, i don't even want to shoot professionally for brands like trust me i don't want either i'm just, i'm like I, i'm i'm exhausted <laughs> <laughs> i feel like 3500 photos in like those four five six days whatever it was like and that's just in my one camera in total it's probably well over five thousand. Wow. if you include uh, my cell phone and maybe two cell phones or plus the, a, a digital camera it wasn't even like the big you know big professional cameras that like the the big guys use hadinki and all the other guys use um i'm and they have like multiple photographers and giant cameras i'm just like with like a, an olympus that i got from dubaloo uh who was nice enough to sell it to me a few years back and it's just handheld and fast and quick and i bring lighting and i do some macro shots and and like it's it. And to be honest, there's tens of thousands of photos that haven't seen the light of day over the years that I, I need to like publish a book or something one day and just like put all these photos because they're just, and, and a lot of them are going to be bad. I'm not going to lie to you because I was not the best photographer. I didn't come into this world as a photographer and I, I still wouldn't consider myself a photographer, but it's, there's, <laughs> there's like tens of thousands of photos that I've taken over the years in my industry, in my career in the industry. Let me tell you, your shots are good, are very good. I appreciate that a lot. Really? I, uh, there's, a, there's a method to the madness sometimes. I mean, it's sometimes it's good lighting, sometimes it's understanding and just the situation. And a lot of the photos aren't the best because I sacrifice the quality of the photo for the situation. So a lot of people will only put up photos that they're really, really good, and I get that, I respect that. Um, but like they're they're like contained, you know, photos. You have like a photo studio, you have like a thing with the lights, and like you have the right variables to make it the best quality photo. And to be honest, those are the accounts that do really well, and they blow up. And for good reason, because every single one of the photos is a 10. It's a, it's a knockout. Every single photo is amazing. And I get that. I respect that. For me personally, because I'm not necessarily a professional photographer, my feed and like my whole thing is more about the events, the people, the circumstances. So my 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 stream on Instagram, some of them will be really good because like I, there's actual photos that like I took time with the lighting and it's like a photo shoot. And then a lot of them are like just spontaneous, situational. I'm at a watch meetup. It's, I, I make everyone put their wrist in the middle. I take a photo in the dark. You know, it's like a wrist shot on a roof or on a boat or it's a random event. Uh, so I, I look at my stream and it's just such a hodgepodge of different types of photos. And uh, that the fact that people, anyone follows me is is it's just I'm so grateful and like humbled that people can deal with this 
hodgepodge of like here's a decent photo and then here's a meh photo like so i pre- i appreciate it so much yeah I, I typically have two kinds of uh people i follow so i either follow like very skilled photographers where i'm like how the fuck did he do that like wow this is like right? wow and I'm, like, <laughs> I'm just staring at the screen for like 10 minutes like wow and then then i'm i follow people who i genuinely like as people and then I don't care about the photos. Like, could be a photo done with a Nokia, whatever, t- 10 years ago, <laughs> a ten, 10 years old uh, camera. I don't care about it. I don't care about the photo. I just like that person and boom, that's it. So it's it's sometimes the community trumps the, the photo aspect of things. Good. I'm glad. I hope I'm on either side of the spectrum. <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> yeah. Um, touching on... Uh, on the community um we recently lost uh one of our pillars i would say in the watch community uh risty uh, i know he was a good friend of yours yeah carter um it's been a difficult week and it's been amazing to see such an outpour of love from the community for him um and i, I definitely wanted to talk about this uh because there's so much that we don't understand and we don't know as a society outside of watches. Depression is such a real thing um, that we just don't understand yet. It's, it's a serious disease and a serious illness that we haven't been able to grasp, grasp our hands on. So many brilliant people have died. So many people have taken their lives and we're, we're still not really understanding why. Um, it's essentially, I equated this, I said this to someone the other day, it, it feels like we're in the 18th century trying to battle cancer with a spork. Because that's how like, ill-equipped we are to, to deal with this and understand this actual disease. Um, and depression is like a real thing that most of us may or may not experience. And, and like, it passes through. And sometimes it's fleeting. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a lifelong thing. I've had friends. I've dealt with myself personally. I've had like, partners, significant others, who you know, had dealt with it and, and had these issues within their family. And I've realized that some of it is hereditary. A lot of it, some of it is situational. Uh, you know, some of it, it, some people just have it. Um, these different different situations. And uh, with Carter, I was fortunate enough that a good friend of ours, that was in Austin, who got in touch, was able to get information for the family and, and reach out and give it to me and let me be the liaison between the watch community and Carter and his family. And talk to them and explain to them who he was because they didn't really know. They didn't understand who he was or his you know what instagram was or what it, you know how important he was in his community um for good reason i mean he was a very secretive person to, to a lot of people to everyone to everyone he was a very secretive person and i get that uh, i respect that um so it was it was nice to be able to share with them how loved he was and how influential he was to not only a community but an entire industry uh and and you know there's CEOs and execs in Switzerland who reference, you know, him back in the day when we would talk about digital and social and, you know, they knew who I was because of Instagram. And I'm like, how the hell do you know who I am? Why would you know who I am? But they definitely knew who Carter was because he had a, a, a huge following. He kind of paved the way, him and Anish and, and, you know, watches and Daily Watch and Panicaholic and a lot of these original guys on, you know, how marketing and digital was going to evolve the industry uh, so he had a huge role in that to be honest he was one of the original guys for a niche um to be like his arm in the united states to be a texas guy and and 
it was kind of like when Anish was just starting out and he only had seven Fridays as a client. Like they kind of, you know, he had a couple guys of the top guys in the world that were kind of like, you know, spread the message and kind of grow that community and the following. So he was really important and, and intricate in the, uh, the, uh, the growth of what the watch industry became digitally. That being said, um, to go back, you know, it's sad. It's really, really unfortunate how we lost him, um, that he took his own life. I think it's important to talk about uh, that it was suicide, so there's not a stigma against it. I think people don't want to talk about it sometimes. I think it's important because maybe we can save lives in the future. Maybe we can let people know that you're not alone, that there's always going to be people who love you, and there's people out there, and there's someone to talk to. And... uh, if you see someone who's in distress, you know, just lend a hand. Just, just, just let people know that you're there for them. And sometimes it's not possible to understand who might be in a deep, dark place because sometimes the people who are in the darkest place are the class clowns of the, of the world, the, the people who need to always make everyone happy and always be funny and always show that they care. Now, that person might just literally always be positive and happy, but they also may or may not – be dealing with something and putting a front and making a face. And unfortunately that was the case with Carter. Uh, like so many people we've probably known in the past who've been these pillars or these people who are like community leaders or just, you know, positive and, and funny and just so much to so many people. I've learned so much more about Carter this week than I've ever known. I, I was fortunate enough to be, to talk to, you know, his, his spouse and her family and his family and just get a bigger picture for the entire, for who he was and just understand how philanthropic and how amazing of a person he was. He was the kind of person who adored pets and animals and cared about other people. I've had so many stories the last week from people from all over the world who've been messaging me and sending me stories and telling me these things about their interactions with him, you know, about how they talk to him all the time, all day. And he gave them their time and he made people feel, he, he let people feel heard. And it's really, really important because he, uh, he, he was really important to a lot of people. He made people feel special. And that's something that is so rare in a human being. So it's, uh, it's difficult to, to lose him. But uh, he was loved and he was a great person. He would go with his, with, his, uh, with his spouse to like the shelter to feed dogs. And they would make little gift bags of like little food goody things for the homeless people around town and go around town and giving those away all the time. Like that was things that he never talked about. He didn't have to prove that he was doing charity work. He never had to be like, hey, look at me. I'm... I'm doing charity work. Like he never was that person. He didn't have to, he didn't feel like he had to prove anything. He just, he went and did it and didn't tell anybody about it. He was that guy. He was very secretive about who he was. He wasn't making it a big deal that he would talk to people and make them feel special because he would talk to people one-on-one all the time and no one knew about it. He was our version of Mr. Rogers. Not going to lie. It was the cool <laughs> taking photos of people with boob chicks and boobs and wrist shots version of Mr. Rogers for us. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Mr. Rogers or if yep. you saw the, the, um, the, uh, the special on him on his life, but how he would take the time to talk to every single kid and answer every question. And like it was for him was all about connecting with these kids who just needed a voice and need to be spoken to like an adult. And it was very similar. He, he lived his life. And I don't know if he realized that or not, or maybe he did, but he lived his life very much in that, in that regards. And we were lucky to know him. We were lucky to have a person like that in our lives that um, was so selfless and he had a lot of demons. He had a lot of things happening in his life. Obviously there's a lot of reasons and it's hard to say why people decide to do this kind of thing. Um, But it's, you know, it's unfortunate he lost his battle of depression. Um, And I don't want 
his life to be in vain. So I want him to hopefully help save lives by sharing the story of who he was and let people know that they can, uh, they can reach out to people and that they're loved and that they're not alone because we, especially living in New York, it's very easy to think that you feel alone amongst eight, nine, 11 million people. Like it's very easy to feel alone in a major city in a lot of places. Um, yeah, I think it's everywhere, like everywhere. And especially even if you're in a very big community, like worldwide community of people, you can always feel alone. Because it's it's your life, and if if you're if you keep everything to yourself, if, if you're more like a introvert with the important things, you could be an extrovert with everybody. You could be like the nicest guy, the most like likable guy in the room, but you can have your own like internal thoughts who don't which you don't share with anyone. I think those are those demons, uh, which yeah make you kind of like feel alone because you're not able to share those things with anybody and those are the things which kind of like consume you yeah it's a we're at a huge loss uh, as a community and as a society and uh i know a lot of people didn't know what he looked like or his name or who he was and in death i hope that more people do know and understand and see the bigger picture um and see that he's actually a really great guy and he was uh shouldn't necessarily be remembered because of like you know his shots of like I don't know, him with chicks and boobs and all that, but be, more because he should be celebrated for celebrating life. And he would want us to celebrate him and his life. He wouldn't want us to mourn. He would want us to celebrate and live our life to the fullest and take that watch out of the safe and wear it. And, you know, to celebrate life and just enjoy it. Right. That's what he'd want. And uh, in, in the show notes, we're going to leave a link. I think you have it on your uh, your Instagram account. If somebody... Yeah, if somebody it's wants to donate profile, yeah. to the funds which tackles um, uh, suicide awareness, um, please do so because it it helps prevent uh, stuff like this uh, from hopefully happening to uh, a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, save.org and there's a link. His uh, one of his sisters made a link specifically for him, so it could be in his name and his honor. Uh, essentially, save.org is a, a platform to help spread knowledge of what to do if you are depressed and also how to deal with people who are depressed and cope with it. And it's just a, it's a platform to help people. Uh, even if, even people like us who are mourning someone who, who passed because of suicide, it actually is helpful for that as well. Um, and that's one charity aspect. There's also another charity aspect that uh, some of his uh, family reached out to me about is uh, for, uh, for animals, uh, for, for pups saving, you know, shelters, uh, donations for shelters, and we'll I'll we'll do something for that later. We're gonna meet a few guys are making a planning on making a, a strap in honor of him, and uh, I want something like with his logo on it, and you know a few words maybe about suicide, maybe not. We're we're it's still in the works right now, and that would you know hundred percent char- hundred of the proceeds that would literally just be to go to these one of these two charities, the Save org or one of the 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 uh, shelters in Austin uh, that need uh the donations that he would have wanted you know he would have wanted to help save a lot yeah. of animals it's it's really really sad i'm a bit uh moved by by the whole thing so i i think we can uh, slowly wrap up um uh, 
although not necessarily on a positive note, but I think there's there's always light at the end of the tunnel, and I, I think we have to look at uh, always at uh, at the bright side of things. And I think for people, they they should know that that they're not alone. They can always reach out to uh, friends, and they always have friends. I think that's that's the bottom line. Even if even if you don't feel like you have friends, even if you have don't feel like you have people uh, you can talk to, there's always somebody who can listen. So don't be afraid to like uh, just put your thoughts out there, especially online, because it's it's safer to talk to somebody online uh, who don't doesn't necessarily know you instead of just walking to some random guy on the street and telling him your life story but it's it helps both of those things help um yeah so um thank you very much for coming on rob uh if you have any parting words uh you want to share with the community um with our listeners uh any advice any like i don't know about everything about the industry about instagram whatever you feel like um i guess uh assumptions are really like the worst thing as as a human as a civilization that we uh that we do uh so just don't make assumptions on uh things people yourself what people are going through um and that and i mean that in the sense where like i want to tell everyone that if they want to reach out to me they can reach out to me they can message me they can text me they can call me they can whatever and I, I'm, I'm always willing to talk to anyone and everyone and i think a lot of times we make assumptions that we're not this or we're not good enough or we're not cool enough or we're not this or we're not that or X, Y, Z. And I think that's kind of like part of the problem. We're just, we just feel uh, sometimes we're not enough and that's shouldn't be the case. If you, uh, you should never think that you're not enough and um, you can reach out to me. And I know a lot of people, uh, sometimes people are busy. Sometimes, sometimes people want to talk to people. So I think you can reach out and talk to anyone, including myself. Uh, and, and, and I can talk about watches for hours and days. So if you want to call and ask me if I have a free moment, then I'll reach, I'll get back to you or I'll talk to you. Um, and, uh, enjoy this wonderful watch community that we, that is, that is here. That's been created that we can talk to each other and have this camaraderie and, uh, um, don't take it too seriously. I mean, obviously like we said before, the investment versus, uh, enthusiast side i guess is kind of important i mean i i get it they're investments they they are um but buy what you like don't don't buy what you feel like you have to buy it's like the best advice i can give anybody is buy what you like regardless of the value the number one rule of collecting always buy what you like actually can i say one more thing i forgot <laughs> ah sure yeah yeah go ahead um, go ahead i i guess I, I so i have to definitely plug obviously myself go follow at spanish rob but i wanted to say uh i'm working on a uh a YouTube collaborative platform with a bunch of guys, really great guys who used to be with uh, the urban gentry who branched off and they started their own thing. And are, I'm fortunate enough that they included me into their, into their, uh, their plans. And we have a collaborative YouTube channel. It's on Instagram. It's on YouTube. It's called watch with us, watch with us channel. So go give that a follow. I'd really appreciate it. And there was a nice uh, live. I think you guys did in May this year. Yeah, we did a cool. <laughs> it was really too long to be honest. But yeah, we did a, a live where we just talked for like a good hour and a half or something like that. And we uh, plan on doing that more often. We're gonna eventually get an office in, in New York. We're all of us are kind of in a, in a few different places. We're like in Jersey, Manhattan, Long Island, Queens. So we're kind of like kind of spread out. So we're uh, we're doing projects and doing interviews, and we have collaborative people that are doing YouTube stuff that we could put on the channel. 
you know, aerial blog to watch. We're working on something possibly with like the Vertello guys, right? And, you know, a lot of people who, who want to, you know, see the potential in doing something, a YouTube platform that's for collectors, by collectors, like by watch people, you know, like actual, like, uh, uh, well, I don't say actual watch people. That's not fair. Um, I mean, just, it just, just people, I guess, in the industry or just people who are passionate about it. And not, we're not all in the industry. I mean, some of us are just passionate enthusiasts watch guys who like they used to work with Urban Gentry and that was a huge platform too. So uh, it, it's just, it's going to be fun. And uh, we do a lot of random things. We have a lot of random ideas for shows, but it was just good that instead of it being like one kind of thing, it's a collaborative effort. Oh, that's so cool. I think, the community needs more stuff like this, especially on platforms like YouTube. Oh, yeah. And I think by the time this comes out, I think my interview with Ed Malin from Moser uh, should be out, should be on the website by then, should be coming out tomorrow. Oh, cool. Go check that out. It's like a good 30 minutes of me talking to Ed and being kind of candid about you know, things and everything about Moser. Yeah, shout out to him because he was so nice uh, to uh, get an appointment for me. Uh, to photograph some watches at Basel, so he was. Oh, they're the best. Yeah. They're one of my favorite brands and one of my favorite indies by far. But they're definitely one of my favorite brands. They, the the mentality in, of being a Swiss brand and actually breaking the mold and and doing things their way. It's it's pretty amazing. I, I mean, they're a brand that I definitely get on it now because I mean I could see them being huge five, 10 years from now where it's like hard to get their thesis because they don't make that many watches and their stuff's going to be really, really valuable in the near future. In my opinion, um, they make an, a, a ridiculous amount of watch for a reasonably amount of a reasonable amount of money, to be honest. Yeah. They give you a lot. So yeah. lots of respect and love for the brand. Plus they try a lot of quirky things. Like they're even, not afraid. Yeah. Even, is, the, is, even my favorite, yeah. uh, uh, I have two favorites too. Uh, actually, there's uh, the Vanta Black. Um, oh yeah, and then I have the my absolute favorite is the um, Swiss Alpine watch, which I don't know. It just it, that's like pure. I don't give a shit about anything kind of watch. That's so funny that so many people love that watch, and there, I talk about it in the uh, in the interview because I admit I was wrong. I don't like that watch and I didn't like it when it came out. When it came out, I thought it was a mistake <laughs> and I'm pretty blunt. I'm pretty like, I mean, Ed's a good friend. Like he's one of my closer friends in the industry of like people who run companies. And I was like, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, you know, I didn't like it. And I, I, <laughs> I was wrong because so many people love it. Um, and you're right. I mean, you're saying you like it. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Enthusiast I got to see a, uh, uh, I think not even sure they released it. I don't think I, so he said they won't release it officially and I, I have photos of it. It's a fully blacked out version of it. Like even the case is uh, uh, completely blacked out, uh, limited to 50 pieces. I'm not even sure. I'm not, I'm not even sure if they, uh, he said they won't launch it, but I'm not sure if they launch it to collectors or not. And I asked him like, can I actually post it? He was like, yeah, sure. Go for it. And I was like, what? It's unreleased. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I haven't posted it yet, but uh, yeah, I should because it's it's a very very cool piece. Yeah, it's the black yeah, dial. Yeah, can't do no wrong. And that will come to an end too. That will come to an end. They only have so many of those movements in that square in that rectangular shape that they used to make for a previous model when they first started the brand. And there's only so many of those movements that they decided to produce uh, because they're 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 brilliant business people as well. They understand that there needs to be a certain cap of what you make. Because there needs to be a level of scarcity, you know, you can't just overproduce something. 
So there's an end to that. You know, if you want your Swiss Alps watch, get it now while you can, because that's not going to always be made. It's not going to always be around. And uh, I think we talked about that in the interview too a little bit, but let me not ruin the entire interview for you. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Looking forward to it. Cool. All right, Rob. Thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Too bad OT wasn't here with us. Uh, He'll be back next week. And for everybody listening, catch you on the next one. Adios. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes. And also, please leave us a review. Thank you and catch you on the next one.